Good evening. Usually I talk with you from my office in the west wing of the White House, but tonight there's something special to talk about. Nancy's joining me because the message this evening is not my message, but ours. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. Drugs steal away so much. They take and take until finally, every time a drug goes into a child, something else is forced out, like love and hope and trust and confidence. Drugs take away the dream from every child's heart and replace it with a nightmare. For the sake of our children, I implore each of you to be unyielding and inflexible in your opposition to drugs. Dad does. Dad does. Drugs. Dad does drugs. Hello. My name's Bob. Welcome to Dad Does Drugs, my podcast. So why am I doing it? What's the point? Well, Ron and Nancy Reagan's Just Say No appeal in 1986 didn't quite work out how they'd hoped. The 1990s happened and drug-taking became pretty commonplace, particularly in the UK. But what about now, in 2019? Are young people fitter, healthier, taking photos of themselves for Instagram, drinking less and taking fewer drugs? Lately, I've become curious about this, about drugs and our relationship to them. Rather unusually for me, I've then read a number of books, some long-form articles in broadsheet newspapers. I've listened to some great podcasts. I even attended an academic symposium to research this narcotic curiosity. A few things seem to have coalesced to prompt the interest. Uh, There were some high-profile drug deaths, some at festivals I was actually at, documentaries I've seen on the telly about the dark web and about drug testing. I noticed that some friends are happy to talk about drugs and their experience with them. Others are 100% not happy, to the point of anger at the idea of anyone they know even being a druggie. As the news has been full of cannabis being legalised in Canada and bits of the US, so CBD shops and products are appearing everywhere in this country too, there's even a marijuana seed superstore opposite my children's school. So, those triggers and others have led me to find out more. I've recorded interviews with scientists, criminologists, musicians, festival bosses, politicians, police and other very clued up people. I've learned a lot and I've been introduced to concepts like harm reduction, pill testing, county lines and I've met parents who've lost their daughters to drugs, a mum who bought heroin for her son and a dad who took cocaine in the basement of Studio 54 with some supermodels. Now, I have three kids, the eldest of which is now 13. I want to have a good relationship with my children as they grow up so I can talk to them honestly about subjects I think are important to help them out with advice that I didn't have when I was younger on drugs, maybe sex, jobs, mortgages, all the tricky stuff. So my teenage son and I have struck a deal and he's going to take part in this podcast too. Is it recording? Yes, it is. Hello, son. Hello. So this is for the beginning bit. This is the start of our deal. And it will be recorded so that we will hear it and know that 
it was a deal that we both agreed to. And uh, the people listening get to hear you for the first time and me making the deal. Uh, so, the deal is that uh, I will make these podcasts and then I will pay you £5 to listen to it. And okay. then afterwards, we will have a chat about what was in it. How long is the episode? <laughs> um, they'll vary in length. Podcasts don't have to be a specific length. So I would reckon roughly an hour. Cool. In this episode, we'll start with the attraction of drugs, the mythology, the rock and roll reputation, and the reality behind the rumour. Jim Cregan is a guitarist. Best known for his work with Family, Steve Harley and the Cockney Rebel, and Rod Stewart. He was married to singer Linda Lewis and worked with her as a record producer. He's also worked with the London Choir Boys, Glass Tiger, Katie Melua, and he formed Farm Dogs with Bernie Taupin. He's currently touring with Cregan and Company. The reason I wanted to talk to him was because he'd been a guest on a BBC radio show I produced, talking about his music mainly, and he told what I thought was a very funny little story about the late Faces keyboard player, Ian McLagan. Once in a while they would crash and burn because they'd, shall we say, over-refreshed <laughs> in the dressing room. <laughs> McLagan used to tell a story about how he would, he would wear a carnation, a white carnation, in his buttonhole, and uh, before he went on he would sprinkle cocaine in it and then he would sort of turn away from the crowd and sniff, pretend to sniff the, the, <laughs> the carnation. <laughs> And get a hit of of coke. Well, naughty boy, Ian. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Now, like I said, I thought that was very funny. I love those old stories of rock excess, but my colleague was very uncomfortable and asked Jim not to tell any more fun drug stories on air. Instead, he probed to find out if Jim regretted his drug taking, which Jim said he didn't really, so they just avoided the issue. I was interested, so I took it up with BBC Editorial Policy, and this is what they said. Hi Bob, thanks for the email. This is the relevant section of the guidelines on harm and offence, alcohol smoking, solvent abuse and illegal drugs, section 5.4.40. We must balance the need to reflect realistically the range of public attitudes and behaviour with the danger of encouraging potentially damaging or illegal behaviour, particularly amongst children. However, there is editorial justification in hearing significant interviewees speak honestly about their experiences. They may well not feel remorseful about having taken drugs in the past, and trying to drag an insincere apology out of them would feel inappropriate, and it's probably not going to lead to a great interview. However, if talking to a guest who recalls hedonistic days, it would be reasonable to acknowledge the toll that drugs and alcohol have taken on some of their contemporaries, so that illegal drug use is put in a context that acknowledges the lives lost to drug and alcohol abuse. I think it would be likely to cause offence to audiences if a BBC presenter sounds gleeful about illegal or transgressive behaviour. Hope that's helpful. Editorial policy. Now, I understand all that. It seems very sensible and very BBC. 
This podcast is not a BBC one, but I hope my training will mean that it's still balanced. I also want it, though, to be a bit more colourful and open. Drug use will be talked about, honestly, for good and bad. And you can make up your own mind, then, what you think. My son, Credence, and I will have a chat about what he makes of it at the end of the interview. I spoke to Jim in a bustling coffee shop near where he lives in the New Forest and he told me about his experiences with LSD, cocaine, cannabis, Keith Richards, Willie Nelson and flying in Rod Stewart's private jet. So, uh, start with a bit of um, just let people know about you and uh, who you are, where you came from, and ha- sort of the, the colourful career and music that you had. So, where where did you where did you start? Where are you from? And and what was what was home life like when you were little? Okay, um, well, I was uh, born in in Yeovil in Somerset, and then I moved uh, when I was five. I was an asthmatic, and my family thought it was best for me to be by the sea, so we moved yeah. to Pool in Dorset, where I was raised, and I stayed there till I was um, sixteen or seventeen, and then conveniently for me, we moved to London because uh, my father's work took him there. And uh, then I was I was in striking distance of all the clubs and all the things I needed to do, so I'd I'd work yeah. there, or I started working in clubs and things. Um, I suppose the potted history of it is I've been playing since I left art school at eighteen, and um, I'm still playing now, and I'm seventy-two. Wow! And I've been I'm, I'm best known for my work, I think, with uh, Rod Stewart which is still ongoing to some degree, um, although I don't play in his band. But I write songs with him, I suppose you could say, but not all of them have made it through records. Some of them, and he's been very helpful to me recently with an, a new song that, I've, that I'm putting together for a charity called The One That Got Away. I played it to him and he loved it and said, but if you just did this, it would be much better. And I've, you know, I've got that kind of relationship with him where, mm. we, where we can talk about music and, and uh, help each other with, with positive uh, criticism or observations. Um, other than that, I was in Cockney Rebel. When Jim says, I was in Cockney Rebel, he means he played the guitar solo on their most famous song. Family, and there's quite a long list. My my uh, list of credits as a producer and a co-writer goes on and on, including you know Willie Nelson, 
Yeah. Um, Joe Cocker, Etta James, Howlin' Wolf, you know, all sorts of people. Chuck Berry I played with. So I've got a very, very long, stupid, daft history. And, and were, you, uh, were you into the rock and roll? So were you a rebellious teenager? Were you, were you desperate? Not particularly, to... no. No, um, my family were pretty good at uh, allowing me to be myself. They didn't put huge rest- restraints on me because I, I didn't really... I've discovered that, that the more you push back against your kids, the worse it's going to get. So the, you, I think of myself as some sort of bullfighter, whereas they come charging at me, I just sort of step to the side and say, olé. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and uh, then they, 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 we don't get into a row. You know, I pick my rows very carefully with my children. And, and was that because your parents had a similar? Yeah, way of I doing think it was a great. I had a great upbringing. I was very happy. I mean, every so often, my dad would, uh, you know, he'd take the slipper to me and beat the back to my legs if I was very naughty, because I could be naughty, obviously, like any kid, you know. And I was cheeky. He didn't like that very much. But eventually, um, when I grew out of it, it didn't last very long. You know, I didn't have to do any really outrageous stuff to get attention. Yeah. Uh, but music was sort of my way into uh, kind of, uh, I suppose, uh, yes. friendships and yes. and girls and, well, you know, if you were kind of cool if you played the guitar in those days. Yeah, and, and was the art school thing a very cool Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was good to go to art school. That was considered a kind of good idea, yeah. Yeah, so what year, what, what time was that then? Um, it would have been 1964. Right, okay. I was, I was at uh, Harrow School of Art. Was London sort of swinging by that point? Sixty-four. It, 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 it came, that came a little, a little later. More when I was about maybe yeah, nineteen or twenty. I was at the, the big, um, the Love Inn at Ali Pali, and I was at uh, the, the, the B Inn at Hyde Park. You know, we're all in caftans and beats yeah. and, and chanting and bells and stuff. Yeah, I was right in the middle of all that. Yeah, big hippie time. I was a serious, seriously into the hippie movement. Yeah. Right. It was inevitable. I mean, I was in a band at that point. I was in a band called uh, Blossom Toes, and we were in the middle of the psychedelic movement. It was a great time for us to be um, uh, creating music because all the, everything going on around you, from the Beatles to the Floyd. It was all, was all uh, uh, enormously creative. It was a very creative time, you know, 69, yeah. 70. I've um, heard uh, Graham Nash interviewed and, uh, and, talk, and he talked about when he was in the Hollies and, uh, and then he goes to... Uh, they're spending a bit more time in L.A. and he realised that the Hollies, the rest of the Hollies, were sort of a pint and a pie kind of mm. chaps. Mm. And he, at that point point was getting really into smoking marijuana yeah and okay. that was the sort of the, the way he knew that it was expanding his music and so he leaves them and goes on to do Crosby Stills and Nash yeah. and Young and so on yeah, there were definitely um, uh, two uh, two cliques uh, cliques not quite the right word um, views about uh, in society about music at that time and I was at quite an early age, a guy called Sean Phillips, who was um, who was a folk singer, um, turned on the whole band to LSD. Right. And that was a mind-boggling experience. I never had anything like it. There was, there was nothing like it. I mean, first of all, you the massive hallucinations, and then these waves of of uh, euphoria and then also waves you could have waves of fear and, and sort of strange visions um, but but uh, Sean was uh, was into um, into yoga and 
psychics and all this sort of stuff. He was a real serious hippie. And the way he turned us on to this was he, he lit a big candle. We sat cross-legged on pillows in a circle around this candle. And then and Sean read to us from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. <laughs> so it, was, it was like a religious experience. Yeah. It was really interesting. I mean, I, I look back at it and I think that was very was mind-blowing. It really was. And um, I, I, as, I, as I said to you moments ago, um, I don't do any kind of drugs anymore. But there were times when I was experimenting with drugs and I did find uh, they were of interest. Uh, although uh, I, f- I feel you, you are, take, you are s- taking a serious risk. I, that's why I can't recommend it to anybody to do it. But uh, maybe in those days I was just lucky that uh, the, the, the acids that was coming out in the time was particularly pure. I've no idea what's going on with it now. I don't know how much other rubbish it's cut with in order to make money. But in those times, it was pretty straightforward. Um, and and of course, then I did lose a couple of pals who who found that it triggered some kind of psychosis in them. And they, they, the way it was expressed was they went on a trip and never came back. Right. I mean, yeah, and this really did happen. So that was kind of scary. So so you there was a certain element of fear going on in in this as well. Um, but. Because I, I didn't do myself any permanent harm, the experience I found was fascinating. Uh, and, yeah, and did you find that because you uh, you had work, you had a sort of uh, you had other things going on, you wanted sure. to make the music that sure. you know? I, I feel sometimes like that, that uh, something that has helped me not take too many drugs would be the fact that I've got a job to get up for on a Monday morning and you know yeah. and I think that's probably if you've got a balanced life it's a, a helpful thing isn't it well I discovered fairly swiftly that um, performing when stoned on anything was a bad idea right um, I don't know if it was somebody recorded what we were doing or somebody told me you know you, you would you would think you were playing great. I mean, and this goes right through to cocaine and all the other things. You think you're playing well, but in fact you're not. You're pretty well rubbish. And so, if you want to keep your career alive, you have to you have to perform pretty well straight. Mm. And that's my opinion, anyway. I mean, we might, things might work for other people. I mean, I'm, now I will have a, a shot of vodka before I go on. But just before I go on, but you know, ten minutes before I go on, I have a shot of vodka, and that's that's all I that's yeah. that's just takes the edge of nerves down yeah. a little bit because you need to be nervous, but you don't want to be too nervous. And now it's become a sort of a ritual, so I probably can do without it. But this has been going on for years. Um, uh, but other than that, no, um, uh, I, I think it's uh, I think people kid themselves. When I was in the Stuart Band for a while, um, we had. And unbeknownst to me, this was later on in the in the um, uh, when I went back and did, after I'd left, I left for about six or seven years. And I went back and did yeah. an unplugged tour with we were playing along with yes, Ian McLaggett, and um, there was a faction in the band that that uh, did coke. I, I wasn't really aware of this. I found out later. McLaggett and I didn't do anything. We were, we'd have a a glass of wine maybe or, or I'd have a shot of vodka before we went on but nothing we weren't doing anything before or after we, right. we'd maybe go out and have dinner and a glass of wine uh, but uh, there was a, a faction in the band doing coke and you could feel when you're on the stage that, that it, it, to be a to be a, to be really good in a band you have to be 
uh, in tune with what the other guys are doing. You have to you have to become a, a, a one uh, unit uh, listening to each other. And and if one person's pulling or pushing, you, you're aware of it. I mm. mean, this is when you get to be at yeah. a certain stand. You're not going to notice this when you're you know starting out. But later on, when you really know what you're doing, well, yeah. Well, I know that's me bragging. That's not really true. Let's say that I've become sensitive to that because I've done it for so long. Yes. I would feel the push and pull in the groove and the band never really sat ah, down. You know, like some bands sit down. I mean, like sometimes the Rolling Stones, they're just, the groove is just ridiculous. Even though the tempo might move, the groove is ridiculous. And, and people like the band and, uh, and, um, um, and there's, there's, there's several. And my band, I have to say, Cregan and Co. is one of them. Right. The rhythm section I've got in this band are just so nasty. There's grooves that are about as narrow as a piece of string, and you're trying to walk on it and not fall off. And there's bands with, like my band where the groove is like the, the M25, and you're walking down that. You can't fall off the groove yeah. because it's so thick, it's so wide. And I found that, uh, that cocaine ruined the groove. People thought they were great, but in fact they were, they were not at all. They were always edging forward. Well, um, uh, Noel Gallagher in the 90s has sort of talked about some of the Oasis uh, tracks, particularly on their third album, uh, you know, Be Here Now, as being just him on cocaine in a studio. And, and you know, he's sort of, mm. I, I think he's alluded to being slightly embarrassed looking back at those <laughs> those tracks. They're too long, they're great noodly things that obviously sounded great to him at the time, but yeah. I, I haven't necessarily... Yeah, the melodies are all right deep within all this reverb and extra echoes and things okay, tailing out for minutes and minutes on end. Yeah, yeah I, 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 oh, I get that yeah. entirely. Uh, I don't... I won't have anything to do with any of that stuff when I'm working. I mean, I just... but. But that's through experience. Um, I know there. Are, I went down to um, Willie Nelson's place yeah. in um, in in Texas to his studio to record him singing on a, 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 yeah. a doing a duet with a girl called Janice Ian for an album I was producing for Janice. Oh, yeah. And the first thing that happened is he walked in the door, and I, I'm used to you know fame, working with famous people. I've worked with loads of famous people. Yeah. And it makes no. It's sort of no difference to me at all that uh, you know they're famous but Willie Nelson I don't know what it was about Willie Nelson he's five foot nothing <laughs> and he exudes this charisma that you could almost you could almost warm your hands off you know like a fire yeah it's coming out of this unbelievable I was kind of, I was taken aback um, and uh, then he's and he was so lovely he was really friendly and warm and he rolled a joint said well you know we, we, just before we get to work we have a joint I was thinking oh God, you know, here we go. I'm not going to, all my my critical faculties will be out the window. But it was Willie Nelson. Yeah. Uh, the idea of me sitting there and saying no to Willie Nelson, because it could be once in a lifetime. Yeah. I'd be in a room with Willie Nelson having a joint. So, um, so I did smoke the joint with Willie. But the good thing about it was that Willie was so good at what he was doing, I didn't, he didn't even need me to be there. It was like I'd say, okay, let's do a take. That's about as much as I had to do. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, and Willie, that was lovely, thanks. And <laughs> then back up and leave. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my dad was an enormous Janice Ian fan. Uh, okay. I wonder if it's... Uh, yeah, I I'm sure I'll have heard plenty of the tracks you uh, worked on. Well, I don't know. I did one album called uh, God and the FBI, which is a lovely title. Right. So... Um, 
you get those moments where you know famous stars smoking a joint and you you kind of can't say no or what have you. Where, well, and and you started off with your um, the, the friend wanting to read from the Tibetan Book of the Dead and introduce <laughs> yeah. it to LSD. Yeah. Yeah. At, what, at what point in the sort of rock and roll life, the life of a band? Uh, where does the drugs come in and where does it come from in your experience when when you sort of you start to think oh okay this is the way we roll now when we're on tour um it started very early for me um the 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 awareness of, of, of drugs uh, in in the in, in in music with a guy called uh, Cliff Barton who was a fantastic bass player he was the he was the hottest bass player uh, of his time you know played with Graham Bond and uh, um I don't know, he died, he died at something like 24 of a heroin overdose. But um, I was in this band, Julian Covey and the Machine, which was, you know, it, was a, not, it had some good people came and went from it, and Dave Mason was in it after me, and, um, and a few other people. But we'd be in rehearsal and he'd be rolling up a joint, and I'd be kind of going, oh, what's all that? And I was 17, 18, right. no, I'd left school, so I was 18 or 19. My first bands, um, so I was aware of it. I steered clear because uh, everybody told me that was the right thing to do. Steered clear, but then at some point you think I'll give it a try. But I was, I was never, I never was addicted to anything other than coffee, right? Probably, um, but I definitely experimented, and I for quite a long time in Blossom Toes in, in my downtime, listening to music or whatever, I would smoke a joint. Uh, and then after a while, I discovered that I really wasn't enjoying it anymore. Because, it, because, and the other thing is, I believe now that that, that all those kind of drugs, um, ha- the hashish-based drugs, are uh, much stronger than they were. It, was it called skunk? skunk? Yeah, I think something called something. I think like it that. does. It does seem that things have got stronger. Yeah, and apparently it's it's really quite it's really quite annoying because it, because you're wiped out. You, you used to be able to to smoke a joint and function quite easily because it was just like the difference between having a, a half of bitter and and a, and and a quadruple brandy. Right. You know, and and now it's a quadruple brandy and you see, you know you're going to feel it. But before before you would you, you would be just a little bit stoned, but that'd be easy, you could cope. You know, if the phone rang, you wouldn't go, oh, you know, yeah. I can't talk to anybody, <laughs> you know, and go off, go off into weird stuff. But uh, so even even at the level that I was doing this, um, I I discovered that I didn't really enjoy it, and it had stopped being interesting, and the, the experimenting and the fun of it had gone, and I started to feel slightly paranoid. Um, and I think... Because of my personality, I was able to recognise that this was not doing me any good, and I better quit. The other thing I found was that it took away a lot of my motivation. Yeah, I would be quite happy to be stoned and listening to an album, and and spend you know half a day doing pretty well nothing, or or a day doing nothing. And, and now I, don't, I can't do that. Now I want to be doing something. I want to be working on a song. I want to be. I'm writing a book. I'm producing other people's records. I've got a, a child to look after. You know all these things. I'm, so I'm really active. And as I found, it made me kind of a dope. Dope was a good word for it. Yeah. Know, because you become a, just a stoner. That's a that's a terrible mistake. I'm very busy telling my son about this, who's uh, 22. Um, I don't talk in any great detail with him about what he does about drugs. I told him what I feel about what uh, overuse of uh, smoking marijuana or weed or any hash or anything, what it will do to you in the long term. 
and that you have to be careful about it. And uh, yeah. the other stuff, I mean, cocaine, and I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he's going to be like me, he will be, will never touch the, the really bad stuff, you know, heroin and, um, and, and um, what's the other one, um, crack cocaine. Yeah. And... Uh, and uh, crystal meth, those so ones that you know, you just you, you, that's not a door you want to open. No, you just don't just don't, because a, a friend of mine, um, another songwriter, said that I went down to write with him and he was in pretty bad shape, he wasn't feeling well at all. And he'd, he'd um, what happened to him? He got the yeah. flu or something, I can't remember. But somebody had, had said, uh, You want to try, um, you want to try smoking crack. <laughs> and he went, no, I don't really want to do that. No, no, I don't. He said, oh, come on, you're going to just get it to be great. And he, and he smoked this hit on a crack pipe. And he went, oh, my God, this is amazing, amazing. And from that, from, from, from that time, you know, let's say that was, you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, by the time it came to 5 o'clock, he was looking to try and score some more. Right. Just the one go. But something happened. I might have fallen down and twisted his ankle or something, and he couldn't go. And then, the, of course, the, the time uh, that it took him to get better, where he yeah. could go out and, and chase up somebody to give him this stuff, he'd, uh, he'd passed the, the, that dangerous moment and looked back and he went, God, that was a close call. Yeah. I mean, I guess your son now has got this sort of 30 or 40 years more rock mythology of the sex and drugs rock and roll to look back at, whereas <laughs> you, you were kind of starting out at a time when there wasn't a, a great catalogue of... Yeah. Uh, very good point. The jazzers would smoke dope and, and, and do heroin, mm. but um, but we, we didn't knock about with any jazzers. We were, we were off on our own path, you know, so... Uh, so the heroin thing didn't didn't show up in my world really at all. I mean, yes, there were I knew people who did heroin, but they it never it never I was, I was never in a band where people did it. Yeah. So that was that was kind of helpful because I I mean, but I was scared enough of heroin to know not to touch it. Right. Um, and I think I've because I've been very open with my children about my previous drug use I've never told them you can't do it mm-hmm. I haven't never laid the law down about anything I've just given yeah. them advice or, or, or what it was like for me my point of view and let, and then said listen this is your own path you've got to choose for yourself but I mean really, really just know that if you find yourself getting into trouble talk to me about it right because I might be able to help but basically once kids get to I mean my friend um, I won't mention his name but a very dear friend of mine two teenage kids a bit older than my 13 year old and he said you know it's all over the place he's got a boy who's 18 17 he said you know they're all smoking dope yeah he said it's just it's just what happens so you have to there's no point in you get you know being irate and making it because yeah. half the time i mean for example in, in california now it's almost uh, it's almost legal yes i mean yeah. people have licenses and you can go in a shop and, and get some uh, liquid um, whatever it is and it's good for it's good for lots of things like epilepsy and, and sleeplessness and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, did the did the your years in LA? You know, so when you're in Rod Stewart's band and you're writing hit singles for him and, mm. and things are going really well. Mm. Did the did the sort of whirlwind of uh, sort of drugs that it's as your career pinnacle did that escalate as well was it a sort not of... really no no I, I, by the time I joined Rod I'd already been in, in family and Cockney Rebel I was kind of an experienced touring uh, studio guy 
Right. You know, I, it was it was um, Rod's, being in Rod's band was the the pinnacle of my career, but I didn't I wasn't a kid, you know, and I I, uh, I already knew kind of who I was, you know, to some degree. The, I think the the huge amounts of money probably turned me into an annoying little pup. <laughs> <laughs> I think I must have been. Uh, there must have been times when uh, uh, I was. Uh, I might have been um, uh, thoughtless, should we say? But it, it, but it wasn't about uh, doing more drugs because I had more money. Right. I just had better cars and nicer clothes. <laughs> but did you see people fall up, fall away at that point? You know, get themselves no. in trouble? No, not so much. Uh, alcohol was one of the things you had to watch out for. I saw some people who needed to, uh, who had to go to rehab. I definitely saw that. Yeah. Well, Rod seems to have always had the jovial, always sort of, you always see him with a pint kind of yeah. pop star, you know, yeah. rock star. Yeah. Um, but he seems to have come out unscathed from yes. decades in the music business. Somewhat similar to my point of view, although I don't think he ever did LSD. And he certainly didn't smoke much. I don't think he smoked at all. I think he probably tried to smoke a joint once and then didn't like it. Um, but um, he would. Uh, he was a, a kind of an amateur cocaine user. You know, we never. We were never that bad. I mean, here's an example of, of how bad uh, m- m- the amateur cocaine user is against the professional. So I'm sitting in. in there's going to be. There's going to be some painful name dropping here. I hope you don't mind. Um, I'm sitting in Britt Eklund's house. And I'm sitting on a sofa next to Keith Richards. And Keith Richards chops out a line on the table, which I kid you is a foot long. <laughs> and going, you know, not much different from, from the, the thickness of my little finger. Right. And I'm sitting next to him and I thought, oh, hi Keith, oh, that's nice, thank you. Yeah, okay, I'm not saying anything, I'm just watching him do it. And he chops it out and then he gets a, rolls up a, a bill and does the entire lot, half up one side of his nose and half up the other. And I looked at him and I thought, I've never, ever seen anybody do that much drugs. Yeah. Never seen anybody do it. And it didn't seem to make any difference to him. He wasn't like, yeah, you know, I keep people on cocaine, they're all sort of speedy and, you know, talk too much and, you know, all that rubbish. No, not at all. He just carried on. I was quite bumpy with it. I thought, oh, I could have had it. Give me a taste. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read... Um, uh, but Tim Burgess is the lead singer of the Charlatans. So through the nineties, they're they're a big touring band, okay. and and yeah. he said he sort of had a a constant cocaine habit for a decade that sort of no one really knew about because he didn't he didn't crash and burn in a big way. Yeah, he just um, yeah. it was just what he yeah. did really. Yeah, uh, and eventually I think the wheels started to come off. I guess in his personal yeah. life and things, and he's just sort of I think he doesn't do it anymore. But um, I, I think there's quite a few bands where that's just part of life, part of tour bus life. The tour yeah. manager arranges the, the drugs yeah. for the guys. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, is that? Did you see that as a sort of just a sustainable way of life? You know, I mean, yes. someone like Keith Richards, I guess, yes. maintained it for yeah. years. Yes. Uh, um, and and some of the guys in Rod's band uh, after I had left, that, that was their lifestyle. They didn't. We yeah. the, there was we were more interested in drinking than. Than drugs because drinking was seemed to be more fun. I'm right. not saying it was, but it seemed to be more fun because um, you're slightly more outgoing. I think no, that's not true. Cocaine, yes. cocaine's a really weird drug because it, it it gives you this sort of boost of confidence and you feel kind of good about yourself. 
you, you, you become uh, what you think is a slightly bit larger than life version of your normal self. But then uh, at the other end of it, you, there's the downside of it when you're coming down from it. It's not a huge yeah. down, it's just a bit blah. So it's not, the, the, I mean, the, the peak it doesn't last all that long. And then as it slowly tails off, you don't feel, you just don't feel so good. Um, so you, you're inclined to want to keep topping yourself up. Yeah. And then, of course, you can't sleep because you're stoned out of your head. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, you know, the thing about alcohol was that if you, if you were too drunk, you'd have a hit of cocaine and it would straighten you up. You know, you, and then you could drink more. I mean, what a horrible, vicious cycle of, and of wrecking your health. Yeah. That wrecking it. And, but I would catch myself, uh, as, as I've done, I've been very lucky. All my life, I've, I've never really suffered from getting myself deep into trouble. I get into trouble a bit, you know, and I, 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 but I know that my father had this thing too. He remembers when he, when he was thinking at lunchtime, he didn't really want to go through the day if he didn't have a little shot of whiskey. And, he, you know, very quickly after that, he went, whoa, who's this bloke? You know, right. That's not who I want to be. Yeah. And, um, and I'm somewhat the same, you know. I, the, and I've had friends who have been very dear to me that have been really, really bad alcoholics. John Wetton had most terrible fights with alcohol. He was a bass player in Asia, right. and um, King Crimson, family, Uriah Heep. Um, great, wonderful bloke, wonderful musician. He said uh, he realized he was in trouble when he woke up on the kitchen floor in a pool of vomit, and the only thing he could think of was, is there any more lager in the fridge? Right, gosh. And he said people would. He would. He said he looked like cat weasel. He said people would be crossing the road to avoid him. He said it was. He said that it, you know. And he got help. Yeah. He did get sober. But but it was a big struggle. Yeah. I've never never been anywhere close to that. Nowhere near it. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. It strikes me that probably Rod, from the way you've told stories before, was a sort of play hard but also work hard type of guy you know? yeah. and, and you're there obviously writing songs that you want to get on the album sure. you talked about the fact that it's quite competitive Oh yeah. all these songwriters they all want to get songs on Rod's sure. next album so yes, course, yeah. you can't really go off the rails too much I guess no you can't or, or I didn't I don't know that I c- couldn't I mean, I mean hmm. Woody was Woody was uh, in bad shape there for a while. Woody's now sober. Woody is Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones. He was, you know, I mean, hanging out with Keith. If you're going to be Keith's party, animal, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're going to join him with him. You, you, nobody can keep up with Keith. I mean, he's just a, he's a force of nature. I, I, um, I worked with the, uh, the the choir boys, the London choir boys, they're called in America. I made their first album with them as a producer. And um, they thought that they ought to, they should mimic the behaviour of the Stones in the faces, and that was, you know, going to be part of their ticket to success. Yeah. Well, it was a terrible mistake because they, they couldn't do it. And very few people can, and you shouldn't even want to, but they thought that was going to be, you know, they were going to be this rowdy party band. And of course, they would get drunk and couldn't play well. And uh, the, the whole <laughs> I mean, I, eventually, Sharon Osborne, who was their manager, had a bodyguard on them to try and get them to go to bed at, by, uh, by four o'clock in the morning so they could get up and be in the studio by, you know, after lunch. Yeah. I mean, it was nuts, absolutely nuts. 
At this point, Jim's phone rang, interrupting his train of thought on the Choir Boys rock excess story. Uh, so uh, we left that one and moved on to talking about advice for children and uh, how he talks to his kids about drugs. My point of view to um, parents trying to decide what to do about the, talking to their children is don't lie to them. You don't have to go into any great detail about you, what you've done, or, but, but don't lie to them. Because if they ever find out that you lied, they, you'll, you'll lose your respect. They'll lose all respect for you. And it's hard, to, it's hard as a parent for them to have respect for you is when they're in certain years they look at you as a silly old person. And what do you know? It's different now, Dad. You know that sort of thing. So, yeah. so you have to be very careful to uh, 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 to be supportive and try and help. Uh, help. Well, first of all, it's helpful if you could try and understand them. That would be, awesome. you know, actually make an effort to understand them and make an effort to to show them that you you respect them. Because I've seen quite often where parents. Decide at some point because their children are a bit cheeky or a bit, you know, don't do what they're told, don't clean up the room and everything, that they're now going to start a kind of a, a, a war with them, which can last, you know, through some of those teenage years where they hardly speak to each other. It's a, this is a, 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 I don't think this is good parenting. I think you have to be respectful to your children. And even if they're not that respectful to you, because you're, you're supposed to be the teacher here. Yeah. And um, and with my 13-year-old daughter, because everybody's telling me, oh, it's 13, you know, it's all going to go horribly wrong. And I'm going, no, no it's not going to go wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be on top of this. So I never tell her to do anything. I always ask her, would you please, what time would you like to go to bed, given that, you know, you've got to get up in the morning? What time do you think is fair? Right? And then she'll give me a time and I'll say, that's all right, then we'll do that. Um, and, I, and sometimes I'll, I'll, I won't make a hard and fast rule. She'll say, "Well, Dan, I want to see this thing, and it'll be won't be finished till ten o'clock." That's huge. Well, that's okay. That's huge. But not every night. Uh, it's yeah. Okay. So we have this kind of we discuss the, these kind of rules and regulations and make yeah. as little as possible. You know, tiny little rules like you can't go out in the boat without a life jacket. Okay, there's a rule. We're not going to break that. I'm going to wear one. You're going to wear one. Those kind of rules. Mm. But other than that, not much. You know, oh, yeah. um, that way, they haven't got anything really to 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 fight with you over. Well, I mean, that's the plan anyway. I mean, I'm sure they can find things if they really want to try. Yeah, but, Dad, I can't bear the way you you know you comb your hair. Or, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going out with you in those shoes, Dad. I don't do any of that about no. the clothes either. Do you think they've had? Did, I mean, um, perhaps less so your children because you're not the the superstar front man, mm. big name. But mm. you know, the kids are famous. People, Rod's kids, for example, do, do they have a, yeah. a harder time? Do you think yeah. growing up already yes. quite wealthy and and then in a in a sort of a spotlight? Yes, I think it's harder for them uh, and not in a. It's not pleasant for them to be the children of a famous person because the the other kids will um, poke fun at them. I mean, I remember Robin Bazurier, who's whose mother was Hattie Jakes and his dad was uh, John. At the time uh, Robin was growing up, they were all over the radio and on the TV. I mean, she was on Sykes. And it's, it's, you know, it's well known in his school that his parents were famous. Yeah. yeah. He hated it. The other kids teased him, mocked him, um, you know, thought, they do things like, you know, I suppose you think you're special because um, your dad's a, you know, on telly. Yeah, you know, this I mean, kind of stuff. You, yeah. And it's, and you, 
there's nothing much you can do about it apart from ignore it. But he had a quite hard time with that. And I think, um, I think most of Rod's kids are all right now. Um, of course, the new one, the the, the young ones, uh, uh, Aiden and Alistair, are um, what's it, eight and thirteen. Um, it's a bit early to know what's going on there. But Penny's a real proper mum. She uh, she picks them up from school. So does Rod. They, they drive to the school, picks them up, and they they, they have the, the the other kids come round to their house and play, and and then Rod. You know, hangs out with the parents who come over to, you know, it's not. It, it, they, they behave. They they behave like regular people with the other regular people whose kids are at school. Yeah, that doesn't mean to say that that they don't. That there's not some sort of slight. Um, I suppose you think you're fabulous kind of stuff. You know? Yeah, it's really weird how people yeah. view you if you do something that gets you on television. It's just what your job is. I I, I wonder if um, for the. For the young generation now, growing up, the um, I, when you look back, you know I love yeah. like the new film Bohemian Rhapsody. Looking back at an era of rock and roll, mm-hmm. that uh, you, you want there to be st- stories of rock and roll hedonism and excess because it feels like that was the the ultimate time when it when it all happened. Sure, because uh, I guess there weren't smartphones and social media and, and the, you know everyone prying in. What 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 was going on at those parties that Queen threw? All the all the rumor is that is it is the exciting thing that we've got now. Yeah, uh, I wonder if it's harder. For the younger lot, because it is, I'm sure it is. You can get hold of more drugs more easily, and you do that instead of doing the creative music that the bands were doing. Uh, yeah, originally. I don't know I, I, because I don't do it, and I'm not really in touch with anybody who does. I don't know what it's like now. I mean, I don't know how you know if we were to walk out the street now and, and find the right corner or the right cafe or whatever, we couldn't score something. I've no idea because it's been. I don't do it. Mm. So my hunch is it would have taken us quite a while to score on the streets just outside where we were because we were in the New Forest in a nice hotel in the town of Lyndhurst. I don't think it's a hotbed of drug dealing, but I might be wrong. So I don't know if it's easier or harder, but it was quite easy back in the day. But of course, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in a group. People are, people are coming up to you. But anybody, everybody always knew somebody who was dealing drugs. Right. It was kind of, it's, you know, who's, who's you, where do you get, where's your local butcher? You know, it's, it's, it was your local dealer. It was like that. So, um, and, you'd, and when I was in Blossom Toes, the dealer would come round once a week when we, we got paid by the management company, and he would, he would t- take some of our uh, uh, our advance money, and, and we'd spend it on 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 hash. Wow! <laughs> delivery, home deliveries. But it wasn't we were getting things like a, what's called a pound deal, which would be maybe the size of a sugar cube. So right. it was minuscule amounts of, of drugs. But you know, that, that was maybe that was the good thing. We didn't have enough money to buy any kind of quantity of it. Um, and have you have you bringing it up today? You know, have you sort of. Uh, taken other younger musicians under your wing have you sort of felt like you kind of can give a bit of a wise word yeah yeah I, I did a master class at, um, at Lippa Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts Paul McCartney's place for talented young musicians about uh, well, a couple of months ago maybe it was now um, and spoke for about an hour and a half about uh, what it's like to be doing what I do and, and quite a lot of do's and don'ts and quite a lot of um, straightforward advice about how to try and uh, have a career and things not to do to throw whatever chances you get, throw them away. And also about, um, you know, uh, uh, 
how much you want to abuse yourself. Yeah, in in the Stuart Band, it was um, what you did after the gig. Cause you, there was only one rule: is that, that when you hit that stage, you had to be in, in good enough shape to do a good show or do a great show. Yeah. You know, you could be allowed now and again to have a hangover if it was a particular silly evening to a place, then everybody would be somewhat hungover. Um, that would be all right. But if you were to repeatedly muck up the show, you'd be you'd probably be fired. Well, it, it didn't actually work that way. You weren't actually fired. You were, you just weren't invited back when the next tour came. Yeah. You didn't get the call. Oh, lovely. So, you know, so so that was how you got let go. Right. Um, so you could finish the gig. Go out and do whatever you wanted. Yeah. Stay up till six in the morning, but you, you just had to be able to be, come eight o'clock. You've got to be ready. Being on tour, I think, would be the, the time when you, you're coming off stage quite late at night already, yeah. high on adrenaline and yeah. excitement, yeah. and then you need to do something to Absolutely. calm down, cut loose. Absolutely right. And, and whether that's really strictly true or not, but that's what felt like for the truth. Yeah. I mean, maybe you could quite easily. You know, uh, 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 go back to the hotel, have a bottle of soup, and go to bed. Yeah. You never did. No. You were always, uh, you, you, as you say, the adrenaline, especially, you know, when you're yeah. playing those really, really big gigs and the place has yes. gone bonkers. Yeah, you're very, you're high. And then, uh, then you would, you, you know, you, you'd go to the local club, hang out. Uh, you, well, occasionally, you'd just stay in the hotel and drink in the hotel bar. But you quite often go out and listen to a band, or, or you know, the, <laughs> so you know, Studio Fifty Four, which was in its heyday, was an absolutely amazing club. Yeah, and we were, we were in New York quite a lot. Uh, Rod and I were. Um, he was he was going up with Kelly Emberg, and um, Kelly had this flat in in um, Soho in, in the in the village. She had this flat in the village, really nice flat, and she was a you know huge successful model. And Rod and I would go and stay there at her place, right. and I was going out with uh, one of her friends who was another model, as you know, as you do. <laughs> and we would go to these, we would go to Studio Fifty Four, but. Because he was so famous at that point, we couldn't be in the main part of the club. And we would be down in the basement, sitting on beer crates, drinking, you know, beer, Heineken. We wouldn't even get a probably, we'd probably get a bottle of wine with a plastic cup. And we'd be, and there'd be, we'd be sitting next to Debbie Harry and uh, some other, you know, famous star in the basement place on beer crates and thinking, all the all the regular people are up there with this fantastic club of things coming out of the ceiling and yeah. thing, you know moons swinging across the dark floor and glitter falling on you and you know all all the fun's all up there we're, <laughs> we're missing it yeah then the other thing is that they you'd get this kind of uh, roped off velvet rope bit with a, a bouncer standing on it and there'd be you know the band and maybe a couple of friends all sitting around on a few tables you know, drinking whatever they were to give you and um, they wouldn't let people come in and sit with us, or they, or, 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 or you, you weren't really in the club. You were, you know. Look, I've just spent you know all day travelling with this lot, and I'd like I wouldn't mind meeting somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so you had to kind of go out of the velvet rope, and then there'd be all, then there'd be a certain amount of chaos that would cause a lot for much for me, but especially for Rod. Well, thank you very much. Do you look back fondly on um, on that sort of 
you seem like you've got lots of fond memories of, oh, sort yeah. of yeah. excessive or hedonistic times, but in the mix of just kind of good work that you were doing and probably good friendships and things. Yes, there's some good friendships there. I mean, especially, uh, like I was saying to you about the, you know, the, the plane to LA that I'm going to miss, which those kind of little perks <laughs> come, yes. with, come with being... Jim was just saying that Rod is about to fly to LA and... Jim needs to fly to LA the week after. So the private jet that Rod Stewart is offering him for next week is not very convenient. We're <laughs> travelling on American Airlines. Yeah. Uh, hey. But yes, I do look back uh, with, with uh, great fondness. I mean, I'm still doing this. I'm still playing. I'm still, I'm still very much uh, a, 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 a real musician. And, and if, um, yeah. you know, if the... He, 72-year-old Jim Cregan and 70-odd-year-old Rod Stewart are, are on a private plane together. Yeah. Uh, are, you, are you kind of sharing old war stories? Sometimes. Are you sort of Sometimes. talking about fishing? What's the kind of... Uh, where, where are you at with your... Um, there'll, be, there'll be quite a lot of politics. Right. politics. I, he would like to talk football, but I don't know hardly anything about football. Okay. Uh, but that was, he, would, he would like it best if I was a real football fan because he, he can talk football all day, mm-hmm. no trouble. But we talk politics, music, family, um, and, uh, and now and again we'll you know, dip into remember what happens in such and such an occasion. And we share a great affinity for old Tony Hancock tapes. So, I mean, I gave my tour manager, who was friends with uh, Galton Simpson, he was the writers of Tony Hancock, Series, my tour manager got uh, the the these the two guys, Colton and Simpson, to sign, uh, dedicate a, a book of their scripts to Rod, and I gave it to him uh, on Sunday. He was over the moon, and he opened it up, and he went, "Oh yeah, the blood donor, and oh yes, you know the the missing page, all these scripts that we know yes. sort of off by heart because it was." When we would go out in boats and things, or, or sometimes in, 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 not so much in a car, we usually listen to music. But if we go out in a boat, we'd, we'd be we'd put on Tony Hancock and we'd just be laughing through the day. It was stuff we've heard over and over again, but it still worked. Yeah, that's a strange thing about that that particular uh, time and that particular comedian. Um, thank you very much. Jim. Okay, you're most welcome. It's been really good to talk. That's Forever Young, written by my guest Jim Cregan with his mate Rod Stewart. You also heard clips of Passion and Tonight I'm Yours by Rod, written by Jim. His guitar work you heard was from Steve Harley and the Cockney Rebel Come Up and See Me, brackets, Make Me Smile, close brackets. And his song, The One That Got Away, was recorded with a California band called The Side Deal, and that's to benefit veterans who have PTSD and other mental health issues. I've got a licence from PRS, so I can include real music in the podcast, which I'm very excited about. So you also heard, at the very beginning, a bit of Ian Dury, Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, an orchestral version, The Chemical Brothers, Marvo Gig, and Camel Fat, The Quad.
I think the licence means that the musicians get a fair share of the £170 I paid for it. Uh, So it won't be making them rich, but um, some of them are already, so I won't worry about that. And at least we're rewarding them for their moments of musical inspiration. Uh, The next people to benefit are the video game music composers Neil Acri and C418, a.k.a. Daniel Rosenfeld. What's that game behind us? Overwatch. Okay, well, pause that for a sec. Uh, So you just listened to the episode one, the interview uh, with Jim. Uh, Yeah. Did you find it interesting? What did you think? Yeah, actually, I did. What did you find interesting about it? Um, Probably mainly the stories about, like, famous people. It's like, it's kind of stuff I knew already, not specifically, I knew that already. But it's kind of just interesting to hear it, like, how, like, how it worked. Yeah. Well, because people don't talk about it very much. Well, no, not really. Yeah. I found Jim interesting because he was uh, seemed quite comfortable talking explicitly, saying, yes, I did do cannabis. I did take LSD. I thought the story about the, the guy reading from the Tibetan Book of the Dead and introducing yeah. him to uh, psychedelic drugs was funny. <laughs> very of its time, I suppose, very hippie and 1960s. Uh, and then taking cocaine and he talked about it and didn't talk in euphemisms like some people will just sort of say oh yeah I had a bit of a crazy wild time when I was younger but they don't say exactly uh, what they did and I thought he was interesting yeah but also um, very uh, honest and balanced about the fact that he didn't think it was that great he you know Mm -hmm. tried it for a time but then grew out of it almost or got bored of it and also they found and also they found it just didn't work with his music, you know. He, yeah, I was thinking like say about the choir, like that they like the London Choir what's his face? Yeah, London Choir Boys, that band. Yeah, that was one. Um but like they tried to do it like the way like um all the other famous bands did, they just couldn't do it. Yeah. And him and him when he was in his band, if some people were coked up then they couldn't play in time as well yeah. you know the, the band just didn't find the groove as he as he put it so um i don't want it to be a boring dad lecture uh, mm-hmm. these um bits thank you for listening to it <laughs> and um obviously you'll get your five pounds for doing that yep. so there's a book that i've read um by professor david nutt who is a pharmacologist a psychopharmacologist i think so he looks at drugs that have psychoactive effects so drugs that have an effect on your uh, perception and and feelings <laughs> so he um, has written this book all about the harms of legal and illegal drugs and he has a chapter at the back which is um, what should I tell my kids about drugs and he does say discussing drugs f- frankly with your children might not stop them experimenting with drugs but at least they'll better understand what they're doing and they know they can always come to you if they have a problem. So I thought, we'll have a chat and then you can ask anything you like. Don't feel stupid asking about anything. And also, you know that in the future, it's not a no-go area. It's not like a, oh, I can't ask my parents about that or what have you, because you'll know that we've talked about it already. Yeah. He talks about what happens in Portugal where they've got something called decriminalisation. So you can, in Portugal, you can 
be caught with drugs, you can carry drugs and it's not illegal. So if you deal drugs, that's still illegal. But if you've got some weed in your pocket, then that's not a, yeah. that's not a matter for the law. They just um, encourage you to talk to a, a sort of health professional to make sure you're not oh. getting yourself in kind of physical health pro- uh, health okay. trouble and that sort of thing. And um, one of the things that's happened since they did that in the year 2000, made all drugs um, decriminalised, is that uh, drug use in teenagers has gone down. Oh, that so is you really... should do that here? Yeah, the more yeah. I've read, the more it makes sense to, if not... The problem with decriminalisation is that the dealers are still criminals. You know, the only way you can get the drugs is still by... Getting them from criminal, yeah, yeah, and um, and it means you're buying things that you don't really know what they are. You're buying them from criminals. The criminals are probably violent and unpleasant in order to maintain control of the market. So it doesn't quite go far enough. But if if you legally sold them as well as making it legal to have them, then you hopefully remove quite a lot of crime and you make it a bit safer for people to use things so cannabis that's why cannabis is legal in canada now and yeah yeah and if you go and buy a packet of cannabis uh joints from a shop then you know that there's definitely cannabis in them and you know that there's only a certain amount of cannabis in them it'll tell you how strong it is and whereas if you go and buy some cannabis from a guy down the corner you don't know how strong it is or where it came from and and that's can be cannabis is not such a, a life or death one. Yeah. You can't overdose and die on cannabis. Whereas if you're buying something like ecstasy or cocaine, and you buy it from the guy down the corner, and it isn't what it says it is, ecstasy. or it isn't as strong, then that could be that could be more harmful. Yeah, one of the things that. David Nutt says definitely is delay taking anything. So you're only 13 at the moment. I think alcohol in this country, one of the good things about it being uh, legal is that there's laws around it, so you can't serve it to anyone who's below 18. So if the same thing was applied to other drugs, I think that's a very good common sense approach. You know, when you're still a teenager, you're not an adult, anything you take, it's harmful, you know, like the dose of Calpol is quite small, isn't it, for a kid? Yeah. Because their body's little and it can affect them badly. So weight, basically, is one of his big messages. If you are going to experiment with some drugs, don't do them when you're 13. Wait till mm. you're 19, 20, 21. And the other thing, point one of his list is alcohol and tobacco are drugs. So what do you think if someone says drugs? Um, paracetamol and cannabis. <laughs> Do you? Paracetamol yeah. would come under that, though. That's what you'd think of. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's good. You like all things that we put in our body uh, that have a medicinal effect. Or yeah. Effect. Yeah. Our um, uh, our drugs, but usually people like in the papers or just in in conversation, people would say, "Oh, you look like you're on drugs." Oh yeah. If they say it in that sense, I know what they mean. Yeah. But they don't normally include, or a lot of people wouldn't include alcohol and tobacco in that, but they are. No, because you say you look at you're drunk or something. Yeah. 
yeah, you would use different language, wouldn't you? And tobacco doesn't really change. Well, no, that's a good point. Yeah, when they say don't look like you're on drugs, tobacco has a different effect to cannabis, so they wouldn't be saying it in the same context. Yeah, you don't get high or stoned on tobacco. Tobacco, I would say, is like the worst thing. I mean, it is the most deadly. I think um, about 70,000 people every year die in the UK because of tobacco. In fact, I've got it written down because it's staggering. Do you think that's why it's not illegal because its effects are different to those? One of the reasons, because obviously, like, yeah. tobacco first, and that was normal, and then cannabis and all those came along, and they're completely different. So they thought, oh, those, those ones aren't normal. Tobacco's normal, so let's make those illegal. Yeah, so we think we first had tobacco in this country around um, the 1600s hmm. when the explorers were going out to the, to the new world for the first time, so maybe the 1700s, something like that, and they come back with tobacco plants and smoke, smoke it in pipes uh, in this country. Uh, so we've got a long history with it. Obviously, we've got a really long history with alcohol. Uh, people yeah. have been brewing beer and making wine in Europe for centuries so those have remained legal and then other drugs cannabis and things like that are much more modern like 100 years old or so in in this country and they started out being okay and then people get got panicked by them i think generally and yeah. some of, some of it was a bit racist and a bit xenophobic you know they were panicked because they thought it was to do with immigration in in our country and in america people thought oh it's you know, it's coming from people from Mexico or uh, people from Africa or, or, you know, people from India, China, people were panicked about that. So that's one of the reasons why opium and then heroin, which they get make from opium, people got so angry about it was because they thought it was the, the effect from a foreign country, from China coming into their country. So yeah. there's all sorts of weird political reasons why some of the drugs are illegal. The main reason that they should be illegal is that they're harmful. So the government puts laws into place to protect us from dangerous substances. So, yeah, that might be chemicals that people use in factories or drugs that we put in our body. If you're going to have, make a new medicine, you have to have it really checked before you're allowed to sell it as a medicine. And that's why when you open any packet of medicine, there's that great big leaflet that nobody ever reads. But that leaflet telling you all the dosing and, and the side effects that they might have and things like that. Yeah. Um, because the government has laws to make sure that we're protected. And so they, they have decided that some drugs are harmful, and so then they make them illegal to protect us from them. But the weird thing is that um, 77,900 people died in 2016 from a tobacco-related uh, illness. 7,600 people died from an alcohol-related illness. But other drugs, say, that are illegal and called class Class A drugs, yeah. the most harmful. Cocaine, 432 people. Ecstasy, well, 56 people. Don't you think that's... Well, is it, say, the statistics are per the number of people that take them? Because, see, a lot less people take cocaine than smoke or drink. Yes. So it's just slightly different. I know it's like, obviously... I don't know what you're trying to say, but wouldn't it be less... Would be more comparable if cocaine was more open to people? Yes, I think that's a very good point, yes. Lots of people don't take these drugs because they're illegal so yes the, the, there's less numbers of people this guy professor nutt has done a, 
a sort of harms study where he's looked though at the, at the rate of harm that each drug causes and then he's worked out the statistics to sort of balance it out for the number of people that take them. So obviously loads more people smoke and drink than take any of the illegal ones. Um, but he still finds on balance that alcohol is the most harmful of them all. Yeah. And that's not just harm to you, the drinker, because it causes all sorts of liver disease. It's a, it's a nasty chemical that if you keep putting it in your body, it causes you illnesses. Um, tobacco is, is very harmful as well in that way. But alcohol causes the most harm to other people as well. So much violence and abuse and drunken driving and all sorts of stuff happens when people take alcohol. Yeah. So he, he kind of worked out the, the harms and... Alcohol is the worst. Then I think heroin and crack cocaine and then tobacco. And it gradually goes down and down and down. And then drugs like cannabis, ecstasy are much, much less harmful. Mm. And then at the very far end, some of the psychedelic drugs like LSD or magic mushrooms are hardly harmful at all. Yeah. I mean, that does not to say that they're not harmful because people can have bad effects on them. But... um, in general, compared to the ones that we that are legal in this country, they're way less harmful. Yeah. One of the reasons to talk more about drugs is to acknowledge that the ones that are legal are really harmful, and that doesn't, you know just because they're legal doesn't mean you, you don't have to be careful with them. Yeah. That sounds like a dad lecture. <laughs> I did waffle on a bit there. I thought I would make sure in each episode that I talk a bit about a drug that was referred to in the interview. So um, Jim talked a bit about cocaine. Do you know um, anything about cocaine? What it is, what it looks like, Um, um, where it comes from? It's powder and you sniff it, but I think you can smoke it too. Yeah, and any idea where it comes from or...? Um, Not with cocaine, no. So yeah, you get two, two forms of cocaine, powder cocaine, uh, which you're right is a is a white powder, and you sniff it up your nose, and it all comes from South America. There's a plant in South America called the coca plant, not cocoa like the chocolate plant, but coca, and the leaf in the coca has about one percent cocaine in it, and in yeah. some South American countries, people chew it. You know, it's a kind of historical thing for centuries. People have chewed the or made it into tea, and it kind of helps live at altitude in the Andes Mountains, gives them a bit of energy, you don't need to eat as much food. So it's just kind of one of those things, a bit like people in India drink tea. Historically, people in certain parts of the world have eaten what's kind of locally growing there. And so coca is just one of those things that they have. Uh, But in the mid-20th century, a kind of industrial process was worked out as to how you could get cocaine hydrochloride out out of the plant and make it into a powder and then that became super popular illegal drug and it makes millions and billions of pounds for the um, criminals who ship it all out of South America and into America and um, the UK. Use in the UK is going up. In 2017, 2.6% of adults used it. 6% 6% of young people have tried it. 2.6% adults. It's actually quite a lot if you think about it, isn't it? It's a significant number, isn't it? Yeah. And three in every hundred people 
between 16 and 59. Well, you say have used it before or do use it? I have used it in the last year. Oh, okay. So with some regularity, and that's a bit more when you get young people, 6, 6% more. What do you mean by young people? 16 to 24. Oh, okay, cool. So not children. It's quite expensive. It's about £50 for a gram. And a gram would, you know, you'd get a little bag of this white powder and people would chop it up on a mirror or on a something hard, probably their phone these days with a, something like a credit card. And then you chop it in and shape it into the powder into a line and then roll up a note and sniff it up your nose. Yeah. And um, you'd probably get about 10 lines out of a gram. So you get for 50 quid, you get about 10 lines. And most people, I don't know, two people would probably share a gram in a night and then it would be gone. So it's quite an expensive thing, so you're not going to get many teenagers going, oh, yeah, let's spend 50 quid on something. Lots of yeah. other drugs are much cheaper, so that it's more of a grown-up, once-you're-working type thing to take. Do you know anything about it, what it makes you do, feel? No, not really. It kind of has two uses. One is the main use in the UK is going out on a night out, have a few lines of it, along with drinking quite a lot, because it makes you... Oh, yeah, he used to talk about that. It's like you drink a bit and you have some... Yes, that's what Jim said in the thing, isn't it? Yeah, um, it kind of gives you more energy. The drink kind of makes you a bit and pissed, and then and then the coke sharpens you up a bit, which is doubly bad, I think. If you drink and take the coke together, it forms another chemical in your body, which is even worse for your heart and things. Yeah, mixing alcohol with any drug is a, a real dangerous thing. The other way that it used to be, and I think it's probably a bit of a stereotype, I don't know if it's used much in this way anymore, but it used to be like in the finance district, you know, Wall Street, yeah. banking traders would, because that's such a high adrenaline, big show-off kind of area, then people during the working day, they wouldn't be drinking the alcohol, but they probably would be taking coke to be confident and aggressive in their deal-making and, yeah. and banking and stuff. Crack cocaine, which is the other type of cocaine, there's a bit of a chemical process that you do with the powder to make it into rocks. And that is, powder cocaine is sort of what, um, I guess generally, slightly better off, middle class, going out for a night out, people would use. Crack cocaine is like the nightmare drug. Even if you ask people that love drugs, what drug would you never want to start taking? Most people would say probably crack and heroin. Crack is super addictive. You get addicted to it quite rapidly. You take loads of it. It starts to have less of an effect the more you take. And it has horrible health effects. So it's just the worst thing to take. But mainly that is a poor person's drug. The way that drugs go in this country, there's a whole bunch of people who are quite well off and just dabble in a bit of drugs every now and again for a night out or a weekend away at a festival. And they're all okay. And then you've got a smaller, much smaller group about 300,000 people who are addicted to heroin and crack. Like, you know, in Afterlife, there's the um, homeless guy. Yes. Who, like, gives him the drugs when he comes to his house. Yes. So I watched the entire thing. Um, oh, did you? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a bit like him. Yeah, so that's heroin that, that he's taking, because that's yeah. a big painkiller that take with people that have had trauma, had awful things happen. And what happens is that you get this hardcore of people that are living on the street or have had real shit go on in their lives, and they medicate with uh, with heroin yeah can you get prescribed it sometimes you used to be able to um did they get rid of that in years ago but then that used to be something called the british system that was the way that we dealt with heroin addicts and many people would argue that was a much better way of doing it what do they do now 
they um, arrest them, put them in prison for a while, and then they probably get even more of a drug habit or certainly connected to more and more people. Yeah. Stupid. And then they come out and they're still homeless and struggling and poor, and now they've got a criminal record, and then they quickly fall in with the people that they met in prison who get them back onto even more drugs. Yeah. Crack and heroin are probably something that you would just easily avoid and and um and I would hope would never try. And then yeah. but then other things are sort of more experimental perhaps for some people and then they just grow out of them and move on. What did you think of Afterlife? I didn't know you'd watched all of it. Um I found it quite funny actually for most of it. I mean yeah it's a bit where like it's a bit less funny, a bit more hard hitting, but it's fine. Yeah. Overall I think it was quite funny. I thought it was quite um good the drug storyline as well i thought it was reasonably realistic and sympathetic and yeah some really funny bits too yes like. the language is absolutely horrendous i didn't know you were <laughs> watching it <laughs> <laughs> have you watched many things that i forgot had drug storylines in um i mean i watched like brooklyn 99 it's about cops so they do like drug busts and that but like hasn't got a drug storyline so no not really no well thanks for chatting to me Great. For episode one. Any questions? Um, no, no, really. He's probably answered most of them. Cool. Well, anything more, either on podcast or off, then um, just ask. And um, yep. next week uh, in the episode, you will hear me buying some drugs and then going to get them tested at a chemist's place. Um, oh. And then we can talk about them afterwards. Cool. Okay. Thanks. Yep. You bought drugs? Yeah, I bought them on um, <laughs> the dark web. <laughs> How'd you manage to get on that? Um, well, you'll hear in the next episode. Is it, is it technically illegal what you did or not? Uh, technically it was illegal, yeah. Do you, are you fine? Did you get, I mean, as in it's justified, isn't it? Well, I thought it was, um, but I don't think that would have got me off make up any story oh, I was making a podcast officer and I don't, I don't think they would yeah. I don't think they would have let me off but um, I wanted to make the podcast and didn't want to do it without going to see people like The Loop these testing chemists and um, it didn't make sense to do it without any drugs to get tested you know that's a £5 note cool. don't roll it up and snort cocaine to it oh, I don't want to <laughs> Cool, I'm letting you get back to Overwatch. Here we are, again, 24 hours on from the last time we spoke. Uh, I'm back on Credence's bed with him playing a game in the background, not Overwatch this time. No. What's that? Just Minecraft. Okay. After we chatted yesterday, I then fact-checked a few things that when I listened back to it I thought hmm I don't know if I got that right and that was an interesting question that Credence asked and I didn't really get the answer right and I thought you quite like facts and you know getting things correct so here's a here's the nerdy fact um when did tobacco come to the UK for the first time uh was 1586 probably Sir Walter Raleigh when he went off and discovered bits of America Alcohol 
it was the 15th century, so that's the 1400s, when probably whiskey was distilled for the first yeah. time in Scotland. So quite strong alcohol. Cannabis has been found in the 10th century in archaeology uh, in York, but that was probably because it was being used uh, for ropes. You know, hemp was being used for ropes and fabric. So as a drug, uh, it wasn't until 1842 oh. in this country. So uh, I think we were talking about the fact that um, some of our attitudes to drugs were much more relaxed around the use of tobacco and alcohol because they've been around longer. And I yeah. guess that probably does seem to follow. Another couple of uh, things then that I thought were, we, we talked about, the number of deaths from different things when you take into account how many people take them or use the drugs. So the deaths per tobacco users, 77,900 deaths in 2016, 7.6 million smokers. So that's one dead in every 97 people smoking. Okay. Which is a terrible yeah. statistic, isn't it? <laughs> so tobacco, very dangerous. Drinkers, we have 29 million drinkers in this country 29 million adults say that they drink alcohol 7697 of them died in 2016 so one in every 3767 that's not that bad is it and that's probably just from really heavy like drinking yes definitely yeah like the, normal people don't drink that much no the, but alcohol is one of those drugs that you can get a problem with quite Easily, yeah, it's yeah, it's really easily available, and it's quite easy to get hooked on it and drink it a lot. And if you do, then it can have quite bad effects. Um, cocaine users, there's eight hundred and ninety-one thousand eight hundred of them in twenty sixteen. Four hundred and thirty-two of them died, so that's one in every two thousand and sixty-four. Hmm. So again, that's definitely not as bad as smoking. I mean, like that wasn't the same as smoking, but no. Um, it's one in every 2,000. Yes. That's pretty, that's pretty good, to be honest, isn't it? Yes. And uh, people probably combine cocaine use with other stuff. Like, they're probably drinking as well. Yeah, like it's in there. And you can have accidents and do stupid things. Um, and it, and it, it, the problem is a stimulant. So you, you might okay. just have... Yeah, it stimulates uh, your heart. You, you, so you can end up having a heart attack. Um, so it is dangerous. Yeah. Ecstasy, 492,000 people say they used it in 2016. 56 died. So that's one in every 8,785. So it is safer. Yeah. Or less harmful is probably the more sensible way to say it. The harms index that we were talking about this guy, Professor Nutt, gave everything a score out of 100 for its overall harm. Alcohol, I got the order of this wrong, you see, yesterday. Alcohol is the most harmful. It gets 72 out of 100 for its harm score. So that's, that's high, you know, it's yeah. really harmful. Then it's heroin, 55. Crack, 54. Meth, 33. Cocaine, 27. So already way less harmful. Tobacco, 26. And this is harm for you if you're using it, but also the other people around you as well. 
alcohol yeah. makes you a pretty aggressive, horrible person. So does crack cocaine. So they're you know they're not good for anyone around you as well. Cannabis is only twenty out of a hundred harm. Ecstasy nine out of a hundred, and something like magic mushrooms, psychedelic, yeah. mild psychedelic, six out of a hundred. So things. Not all drugs are the same, I yeah. think, is the message there. There's different harms in them. We were talking about cocaine, and when it first started getting used, people chewed it for centuries, just the leaves, but then scientists in 1855 managed to extract cocaine from the leaf. Yeah. And in 1886, it was being used in Coca-Cola and in cocaine wine and cocaine cigarettes. It was in everything, even to... Um, explorers Ernest Shackleton and Robert Scott who went to try and find the South Pole they took cocaine pills with them for their team Sherlock Holmes was a cocaine addict you know Conan Doyle writes that yeah you see that in like the um, episodes don't you yeah the addiction storyline is because cocaine was just being used a lot through the Victorian era but then we talked a bit about why it got made illegal and I was like saying oh all sorts of strange political reasons but Mainly, people started thinking, this is quite dangerous. There were 5,000 deaths in America in 1912 from cocaine. So they wanted to do something about it. And by 1922, they banned it. And it, you know, it became yeah. illegal. A couple of other things. I never said why people take cocaine, why, you know, what it makes you feel like. And generally, it makes you more confident, energetic. Oh, yeah, you were saying about confidence happy and enthusiastic but if you take if you take a bit too much of it or then it it kind of makes a lot of people would say i'm sure i've heard someone say nobody is a better person taking cocaine nobody wants no one goes oh he was much nicer after he'd taken the cocaine normally it makes people be a more bolshy show off yeah. sort of slightly sleazy maybe aggressive annoying version of themselves yeah but that said loads of people take it and if you don't overdo it, like with anything, maybe yeah. maybe it does make you feel more confident and more fun. And crack is... I don't really know what that makes you like because I've never been around anyone who's done it, but um, people smoke that. It's in little rocks and it's... I think it just generally makes you very leery and aggressive, hyper and desperate to get some more. Not, yeah. a, good, not a good thing to go anywhere with. I don't think it's important in our chats to get every fact right, so I'm not going to try and do that. Um, I'm not going to worry about that particularly, but um, I thought that just the essence that I didn't want you to go away with or anyone else listening to it to go away with, I didn't want anyone to think that I was saying cocaine is not harmful. Yeah. Because it definitely is harmful, but um, so is alcohol. In fact, it's more harmful, but it's legal, which is just a bit weird. Yeah. So it's just something to think about, really. And um, that's that. Hmm, yeah, I get it. Cool. I'll leave you to Minecraft. Okay, another quick caveat on a caveat. I think it's worth saying that the harms of drug use are more than just 
the chance that you can die from taking them. There are many more hospital admissions for illnesses, overdoses and injuries that don't end in death. Hundreds of thousands in the case of alcohol and tobacco. Plus there's crimes associated with some drugs, addiction, negative behaviour change of users, uh, the costs to your bank balance, to your employment prospects, socially and to family and loved ones. Right done leave it there thank you very much to jim cregan for being such an honest and entertaining guest on this episode thank you to rob shaw cameron at Nonfiction for hosting the podcast and making the cool artwork and thank you for listening next week i do buy some drugs and get them tested to see if they were worth the money and i talk to a clubbing criminologist professor fiona meesham please rate the podcast on your podcast app and tell your friends if you like it and do talk to your kids and keep in touch about how you get on at dad does drugs on twitter on facebook and dad does drugs at gmail.com <laughs>